Be sure to check out Sylvie's Love, now on Amazon Prime Video. Set in Harlem in the 1950s, a young woman meets an aspiring saxophonist in her father's record shop, and their love ignites a sweeping romance that transcends the changing times. Watch Sylvie's Love, directed by Eugene Ash, starring Tessa Thompson and Namdi Asamoah, and produced by Moth Board member Gabrielle Glore on Amazon Prime Video. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Jay Allison, producer of this radio show, and in this hour, from the historic Wilbur Theater in Boston, we have a live Moth event produced in partnership with the public radio station WGBH. The theme of the evening was High Anxiety, and your host is writer, actor, and former star of the children's television show Blue's Clues, Steve Burns. Thank you. Oh, hi. So welcome to The Moth at the Wilbur Theater. It is indeed very, very beautiful here. We're very excited to do this. Hello, Boston. Tonight's theme is high anxiety. Nervousness, stress, panic, fear. I'm sure you're all familiar with that. I, uh, I do remember a particularly anxious moment in my life right after I had closed a real estate deal with a noted mafioso. Uh, I had bought an old garage in Brooklyn, New York, and I was going to convert it into a house. And the man that I bought it from, everyone kept telling me, well, you know, he's, uh, you know who he is. I say, no, I don't know who he is. He just seems like a very nice man in a black and white tracksuit with salt and pepper hair and <laughs> a lot of gold jewelry. <laughs> and uh, it turns out his was the only garage I could afford um, because I, he wanted way too much money for it, but I scraped all of my money together and I said, well, look, I'll, I'll give you cash. To which he said, Steve, you're a no bullshit guy. <laughs> which I thought was, I was like, yeah, that's true. So he was actually a real pleasure to work with. Everything went very smoothly. Like, he was actually a really super nice guy until one morning I had to do, I'd already bought the place, the place was already mine. Uh, and I had to do some environmental testing as they make you do. I had to do some core samples uh, to make sure <laughs> to make sure that the ground underneath the slab was not polluted. And I arrived very, very early in the morning, I think before seven o'clock in the morning with a, with a crew, and he was there. And he was there already with a, an exact replica of himself who was just fatter, same tracksuit, same everything. And he said, uh, I said, good morning, I'll call him Johnny P. Good morning, Johnny P. And he's like, Steve, what's your process here today? What are you doing? I was like, well, I'm doing core samples. He's like, you gotta dig anything up? And we laughed because we thought that was kind of funny, but it wasn't funny. And he said, I said, yeah, we got to do these core sample things. He's like, well, that's fine. But Louie's going to watch over you. Have a nice day. And he leaves. And this dude, Louie, sits in a town car directly across the street. He asks that we leave the garage door up. And he smokes cigarettes and he watches us for hours as we do this. And we start, it becomes not funny. Slowly and slowly, we become really scary. I'm thinking, what if he just, if we find something, he just has to come in here and shut that door. And I'm starting to really panic, and so is the crew. We're like, this isn't cool at all. And then he's on, and I see him, he gets on his phone. He gets a phone call, and he's looking at me, and he's shaking his head, and he's looking at me, and he's shaking his head, and he starts nodding and looking at me, and he hangs up his phone, I'm not kidding, and he 
reaches in the back of his car and gets something. And he gets out and he walks into the garage and he walks right up to me. And I am full on panic at this point. I'm thinking, this is it. Fat Louie's gonna kill me in this garage. And I remember I grabbed, I grabbed a, plas a plastic trash can lid. That was my thing. Like, I'm gonna stop Fat Louie with this thing. And he comes right up to me and he goes, Mr. Steve. I'm like, yeah. He's like, I just got off the phone with Johnny P. I'm like, yeah. He's like, he tells me you're the Blues Clues guy. Is that true? <laughs> and I had to say, he, got, he had a thing for me to sign. All right, so I did not die that day, but I was incredibly anxious. Now, we have storytellers here tonight, and I asked them each a question. Not what makes you anxious, what calms you down? I asked them each, what's your happy place? And our first storyteller replied, in my car with an egg McMuffin. Please welcome Matthew Dix. When I was a little boy, uh, the best way to impress my father was to place myself in the most perilous position possible. My father was a cowboy in every sense of the word. He was a man born 150 years too late. My father's worn a cowboy hat, cowboy boots, and a cowboy belt buckle for every day that I have ever known him. My father's name is Leslie Jean Dix. <laughs> and he goes by the name Les Dix. <laughs> you have never met a tougher man in your life. <laughs> I grew up on a horse farm in Blackstone, Massachusetts. And my father, <laughs> and my father would board horses and he would train them. He was a blacksmith. But the thing that he was most known for was being able to break the horse that couldn't be broken. I would stand in front of the barn and I would just listen as a stallion inside would bang against the walls and smash the door and knock over bales of hay and rip open bags of feed. It was like there was an explosion going on and the whole barn shook. And then my father would go into the barn with nothing but an apple in his hand. And for the first five, 10, 15 minutes, the banging would go on and the pounding and the explosions, but then it would start to die down and the banging would stop and it would get quiet. And then my father would come out of the barn on the back of the horse that no one could ride. It was like having Superman as your father. <laughs> Clark Kent goes into the phone booth and out comes the man of steel. And I spent my childhood trying to impress and earn the love of this superhero of a father. So I would go in the barn and I would get on the biggest horse I could and ride it out to the ring. I was seven years old. I was on a horse three times my size bareback. And if the walk around the ring seemed a little too easy, my father would whistle and the horse would break into a trot. I was the living embodiment of the phrase, if you fall off a horse, you need to get right back on. <laughs> I remember there was a day we were mucking the saws and we had this mean little pony named Flicker. 
and Flicker reached out of the stall and bit me in the stomach. And I yelled to my father, Dad, Flicker has me, he won't let go. And my father looked at me from underneath that hat and he smiled and said, he's just got your coat. And because it was my father, I grinned and bared it until Flicker let go. And then I held up my shirt to show him the welt. I don't think my father has ever been more proud of me than that moment. <laughs> now, there were ways inside the house I could earn his respect as well. One of our favorite games was, who can stay in the dryer the longest? <laughs> my sister would win that game most often because she was really small and the least claustrophobic of all of us. But if she got cocky and stayed in there too long, my father would turn the dryer on and send her for a tumble. My father would pay us to eat the raw salt pork out of a can of baked beans, and the one who did it for the least amount of money would win. My brother would always win because he would do it for free. And we used to play a game where my father would lie on his back on the dining room table with his arms outstretched, and we would stand in his hands, and he would lift us up, and the person who could stay balanced the longest would win. If you were lucky when you fell, you'd fall on his chest and he'd grab you and hold you tight. And if you were unlucky, you'd tip to the left or the right and you'd hit the dining room table. And if you were really unlucky, you would bounce off the dining room table and onto the floor or into the wood pile next to the wood-burning stove. It sounds like negligent parenting, even by 1970s standards, but it was a great time to be a boy and it was a great time to be a kid. And that's what my father was. He went to Vietnam, he came back, he had three kids in three years, and then he spent the next seven years just playing with us, dangerously. <laughs> and then one day, I got off the school bus, and I went into the house, and my mother was sitting on the couch next to a man, and he told me his name was Mr. McKenna, and he was a social worker, and he was there to help us, because our parents were getting divorced. And he started to tell us why and how it was going to happen. And I remember looking at my mother and she just looked so small and she barely said anything. And this man, Mr. McKenna, who I didn't know, just kept talking and talking and talking. And then just like that, my life changed. The boots were gone, the cowboy hat was gone, the belt buckles were gone. Within a week, the horses were gone from the stable and my father was gone. In about 14 seconds, after my parents' divorce was finalized, my mother remarried, and she became Mrs. McKenna. And that social worker, Mr. McKenna, Neil, became my stepfather. And for a while, it wasn't too bad, because I saw my father, and we would see him on the weekends and on holidays, and I'd ride horses with him. But as the first year rolled into the second, I started seeing him less and less, until I wasn't seeing him at all. And then I had this other man I had to impress, Neil, and he was nothing like my father. He wore white shirts and paisley ties. He drank vodka and wine instead of beer out of a can. He liked the Red Sox and the Celtics instead of the Patriots and the Bruins. And Neil liked everything that his real son, Ian, my stepbrother, liked. So Ian was a baseball player, so I decided I would become one too but the family never had any money, so they gave me a hand-me-down baseball glove for a right-handed player, and I'm left-handed. So I had to learn to play baseball with the wrong hand. So even though Ian was three years younger than me, he was playing Babe Ruth and I was playing the farm league. 
But even when my farm league team made it to the championship and I was named an all-star, Neil never came to a game. And then we joined Boy Scouts, and that was great for me, and I became a patrol leader and a senior patrol leader, and I was tying knots and surviving in the woods. And then one day, Ian decided that Boy Scouts wasn't cool anymore. And so he quit, and so did Neil. And I became the kid who would hide in the bushes at the end of a troop meeting until everyone was gone, so I could walk home and not tell anyone I didn't have anyone to pick me up. I tried everything I could to impress Neil, to make him like me. I improved my grades. I tried to help out the family. I got a job at a farm and gave him the money. And money was always a problem in the family. And my mother and Neil fought all the time about it. I remember there was a time right before Christmas, they were fighting in the kitchen. And Neil was saying there wasn't going to be Christmas because we didn't have enough money. And I gathered my brothers and sisters in the basement. And we started pulling the tinsel off last year's Christmas tree and ironing it out, thinking if we could get the tinsel and they wouldn't have to buy that then maybe we could have Christmas. But no matter what I did, I could not impress him. And then one day, they were fighting again in the kitchen. And Neil said that he was going to leave. And when he left, they were going to lose the house. And they weren't going to be able to feed us anymore. And my mother was going to be alone. And she was going to be penniless. And I couldn't take it anymore. I was 15 years old, so I went into the kitchen and across the counter, I looked at him and I said, be a man. And he looked at me and he said, mind your own business. Go to your room. And so I did. And I slammed the door as hard as I could. And the house shook like that barn with the stallion. And then I heard Neil coming. And I knew he was coming for me. So I stood in the middle of my bedroom and I just waited. And he came into my room. He threw the door open. And I said, what? And I got about halfway through that word before he hit me. He didn't punch me, he didn't slap me, he backhanded me, and it sent me to the ground. But I was not going to let him put me on the ground. So I stood back up and I said, why don't you hit me again? And he did, twice as hard. And when I hit the ground, I was seeing stars. But I was my father's son, and I had fallen off horses and dining room tables, and I was not going to stay down so I started to get up again, and Neil knew it. He knew me, and so he hit me before I could get to my feet, and this time I wasn't getting up. And so he stood over me, and he said, what? And I had nothing to say, so he turned and he left. And while I was lying on my bedroom floor, I swore to myself, I made a promise that in three years I will graduate high school, I will leave this house, and I will never see or speak to him again. And I turned my entire life from trying to hold my family together and make sure there was going to be food on the table to how can I get away from this family as fast as possible. And I kept my promise. When I turned 18, I left. And Neil kept his promise too. Two years after I left, he left my mom after not paying the mortgage for a year and not telling her. And so the bank foreclosed on the house and she was penniless, just like he promised. And I kept my promise for 17 years until my mom died. And I was at the wake, and I had my wife on one side of me and my brother on the other. And I was shaking hands through that line and listening to people tell me how sorry they were for me. And then before I knew it, I was shaking a hand and I looked up 
and it was Neil. And he looked at me and he said, I'm so sorry to hear that your mom passed. And for a minute, I didn't even know who it was. And then I remembered and I realized and I thought to myself, I'm 35 years old right now. I'm old enough to hit him like he had hit me that day. But I knew that I was old enough to know better and to not hit him the way he should have known way back when. Thank you. Matthew Dix, ladies and gentlemen. Matthew Dix is the author of several novels and a rock opera. He's former Teacher of the Year and a nine-time Moth Story Slam champion. You can see pictures of Matthew, his dad, and horses at themoth.org. We'll be back in a moment with more stories from this live event at the Wilbur Theater in Boston. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jay Allison. You're listening to a live storytelling event held in Boston with the theme, High Anxiety. Here's your host, Steve Burns. I asked our next storyteller, what is your happy place? And he said, looking at the water on the beach. Please welcome Walter Pavlo. You know, I've always considered myself a, a good guy, someone who could do the right thing no matter what the situation. I was born with, uh, you know, into a good family, I had two loving parents. I was the oldest of three sons. And, uh, you know, I went to Catholic school almost my entire life. In fact, at a very young age, I was even an altar boy, without incident, I might add. Um, <laughs> but things went my way. They were good. By the age of 29, I had moved my family, I had a wife and two young kids, and I moved them into a beautiful home north of Atlanta in a big gated community with a golf course. It was wonderful. And I took a job with a company, a company you've probably heard of, MCI Telecommunications. And I was going to job in finance, and it was going to be a great job. I was going to be collecting money. But it wasn't going to be just collecting money like, uh, you know, from, from really tough guys. It was going to be collecting money from companies who sold long distance and resold it under their own brand name. Some of these companies you've also heard of. WorldCom was a customer of ours. Enron. Adelphia. <laughs> Quest. <laughs> I realize now it sounds a little bit like a police lineup, but I mean, they, going back, these were great growing companies and they build billions of dollars on MCI's network. But there was another group that causes some concern, and they were called Tier 3 carriers, much smaller. They build 50000 to maybe a few million dollars per month on MCI's network, and they were involved in businesses like prepaid debit cards or 900 business, pornography, gambling, fortune-telling, not the sorts of businesses that you want to be associated with when your motto is friends and family, right? We didn't have like a friends and family and porn division. 
And you can imagine that as I did collect money from WorldCom, things were going well in, in, in Quest and Adelphia and those, but this 900, this, this tier three group started causing me problems. They weren't paying their bills on time and that became my problem and I had to go out and visit them. And when I visited them, there were these very confrontational, angry meetings with really these subpar people um, <laughs> who, you know, you could, it, was, it was very uncomfortable. And then other times I would go out and visit, try to visit these customers and I would find a mailboxes, et cetera, a Kinko's, a UPS mailbox, an empty warehouse, customers who owed MCI millions of dollars and had skipped out on the bill. And that became my problem. It got so bad that it was over $50 million at one time. And all these customers owed us money. I remember calling together a medium, the higher level you know, executives inside of MCI and said, hey, we got a problem. We got $50 million worth of customers that aren't paying us. I mean, what are we gonna do? And they had this meeting and the right thing to do would have been to what they call in accounting, write it off, tell shareholders about it. But the results of that meeting were when they looked at me was we can't write this off, Walt. It's gonna ruin our month. It's gonna ruin our quarter. We have to do something different. And I was wondering, what does different mean? <laughs> and what different means is cooking the books, making accounting entries that mask a problem that exists. And when they told me to do that, I knew that it was wrong. And I didn't want to do it. But I felt a sense of obligation to the company, a job that I loved, a job that was paying for my family, a job that put me in a great home. And so I did it. And then I did it again and again. And they had told me at first that this is only going to last for a couple of you know, months or a few quarters. And then the quarters went to another quarter, and then six months, and then to a year. And it became frustrating. I felt that I was being taken advantage of because I became damn good at cooking the books. I was a chef. And I wanted to, I hated the customers. I hated the customers on our network. I hated the company that I worked for. And then I hated myself for getting involved in something like this. So I confided in somebody outside of MCI, somebody that could get me out of this situation, maybe a new job. And the guy's name was Harold. And Harold had been in the telecom business for a, quite a period of time, and he was extremely wealthy. He was also wise and much older than me. He was 32. <laughs> and I went to Harold and I said, Harold, companies are running up these tremendous debts on MCI's books, and all I'm doing is covering it up. I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. I don't even know if my bosses realize the extent of what I'm doing now. He says, well, how much money are we talking about? I said, it's over $100 million. And he says, well, well, tell me more. So I did tell him more. And after a while, he told me something that seemed just so prophetic at the time. He said, you know what, Walt, everybody cheats. That's sort of how you get ahead in life. What you haven't figured out is how you make money at it. And I got an idea. You ever have a friend who says they got an idea? <laughs> that was Harold. And what the idea was that he told me was that, Walt, you're being taken advantage of, and I'm going to help you. And here's what we're going to do. And what he proceeded to explain to me was an embezzlement, taking money from tier three customers that we didn't like, and instead of paying the money, having them pay the money to MCI, figure out a way to have it directed to bank accounts in the Grand Cayman Islands. And I thought to myself, wow, this is a little steep. I don't know that I would want to do something like that. And he says, well, I tell you what, Walt, you think about it. And I did think about it. And I went home, and for the next several weeks, I traveled the country looking for long-distance carriers that didn't exist. And then months went by. 
And you ever have one of those thoughts that just come to you, it just seems like out of nowhere, this you know, little bit of genius that hits us all at one period of time. And it happened to me. My kids were asleep, my wife was asleep. And I can remember just laying in bed thinking to myself, well, should I do this thing with Harold or should I not? Should I do it or should I not? And then it hit me. And the moment went something like this. You know what? Fuck it. <laughs> Fuck it, I'm going to do it. And I called up Harold and I said, I'm in. And very quickly, we started diverting money. And within almost two weeks, we had a million dollars in the Grand Cayman Islands. Shortly thereafter, it was two million. Then after that, it was three million. And within six months, it was over six million dollars. And that's when I went to Harold and said, Harold, I, I can't do this anymore. My life is upside down. I'm living a double life. I'm a good guy. I'm embezzling money now and putting it in foreign bank accounts. Yeah, I partied. <laughs> but I was also living this terrible life. The fear of getting caught was overwhelming. You know, I can remember the simplest things at the office would get me on edge. My boss would call me and say, Walt, get down here. I've got to show you something right now. I'd be walking down the office go, oh, my God, what is it? And I'd get, open up the office door and he says, man, look at this new pizza menu at this place around the corner. <laughs> and he always had this habit where he'd walk by my office and look in and he'd kind of shake his finger at me and say, Walt, I know what you're up to in there. And I go, dude, you got no freaking idea what I'm up to in here. <laughs> and for a period of time, nothing happened. Six, seven months went by. And then I was on business in Palm Springs, California. Again, chasing customers that didn't exist. And my boss called me. He said, Walt, I got a couple things I need to talk to you about. One, we, uh, we're going to Chicago, you and I, next week. We've got a big meeting up there, so we're going to go to that. Uh, second, we've got some requisitions we need to fill, so you need to get busy on that. And third, Walt, somebody in accounting has called me and said some money was moved on an account, and I need you to look at it when you get back here in the office. And I said, sure, boss, what is it? And he told me the name of the account, and I froze because I knew it was one of the deals that Harold and I had been involved in. And I was shocked. And I didn't know what to do. I was speechless. And the only thing that came to mind right then for me to tell my boss was, you know what, boss? I quit. I'm not coming back to work again. That was my exit strategy. <laughs> my exit strategy was to pull the covers over my head just like a child and hope that it went away. And for, for a few weeks after that, various executives called me inside of MCI begging me to come back to work. Walt, we'll put you in a different position. I know you've been under a lot of pressure. Just come back to work. And I didn't. And then internal investigations called, and they wanted to speak with me. And I didn't want to speak with them. <laughs> so I hired an attorney. And about a year later, I received a letter from the U.S. Attorney's Office indicating that I was a target of a federal investigation. My life is completely upside down. Now I wonder if the car that I saw at the end of my driveway was the FBI monitoring my movements. And the fact is that sometimes it was and sometimes it wasn't, but in my mind, every car I saw was following me. I'd hear something on the phone when I was talking to someone. Are they recording my phone call? And the truth is, is that sometimes they were and sometimes they weren't, but every phone call that I was on, I felt as someone was recording me. An unexpected friend would show up. Are they trying to record my conversation? And the fact is, it's that sometimes they were, but every person I met, I felt was trying to record me. It's a miserable life. Drinking became a problem. Sleeping pills became a problem. I remember after about a three-day drinking binge that I checked myself into a hospital. 
thinking I, I've, I've got to do something, I've got to turn my life around, this is going nowhere, I'm going to have to plead guilty. The prospect of prison was overwhelming. Hell, the only thing I knew about prison was Cool Hand Luke and Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> it was disturbing, but I did. I pled guilty to wire fraud, money laundering, obstruction of justice, and I received a sentence of 41 months in federal prison. My brother, who probably drew the short straw at a family meeting I didn't attend, drove me to federal prison. And I can still remember going in there and meeting my cellmate for the first time, my introduction to prison. He was a 25-year-old African-American, a wonderful guy with a great sense of humor and optimism. He said, Walt, I grew up on the streets of Atlanta, and in eighth grade I dropped out of college, or dropped out of school. And um, ever since then I've been selling crack cocaine. At the age of 21, I was making over 150,000 bucks a year. It's not bad for a guy dropped out of school. And I said, you know what, I guess it's not. He said, what brings you here? I said, well, my upbringing, I'm ashamed to say, was, uh, was really good. I should have known better. My parents paid for me to go to college. I have an engineering degree, and I have an MBA with a concentration in finance. And I went to work for MCI Telecommunications, and I embezzled $6 million and put it in the Cayman Islands. And he sort of looked down for a moment as if to gather his thoughts, and then he looked up and looked me right in the eye and goes, Damn, I should have gone to college. <laughs> Prison was interesting, um, but eventually I did come out, and I moved back in with my parents at 40 years old, divorced and not a penny to my name. And I wondered, how did I fall so far? What do bad guys really even look like? In movies, they wear black hats and capes, in our dreams, there are witches or demons. And then I thought about my own story. And I said, what does a bad guy look like in my story? And the truth is, bad guys look just like me. Thank you very much. Walter Pablo, everybody. Walter Walt Pablo is the co-author of Stolen Without a Gun. He's currently a blogger for Forbes.com, writing about white-collar crime. For a photo of Walt in prison, what he called his new gated community, visit themoth.org. We'll be back in a moment with our final story from this live event in Boston. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the public radio exchange, prx.org. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Jay Allison, producer of this radio show. You're listening to a live Moth event in Boston where the audience gathered at the Wilbur Theater to listen to stories. The host was the former star of the children's show Blues Clues, Steve Burns, and the theme of the evening was high anxiety. So in addition to uh, menacing organized crime figures, I am also sometimes made highly anxious by, uh, and I'm sure many people are, by a very particularly beautiful woman. And uh, I remember one time my friends and I were at a club <laughs> as I was young, and uh, this woman walked past us toward a table, and she was very beautiful, and it was the time stop kind of moment, the kind of, I mean, she was 
exquisite, um, transporting. I, and I must have been really very lost in how beautiful I thought this woman was because my friend saw it immediately as vulnerability and let's attack Steve about it. <laughs> and they were, oh, hey, hey, hey. And they were immediately like really trying to make things difficult because she was sitting right there. And they were like, hi, hi, you know. And uh, I'm like, shut up, man. And, and it became a thing, like, why don't you go talk to her? Why don't you go talk to her? I said, well, I could if I wanted to. I just don't want to talk to her. You know, she's with her friends, you know. And then it became that thing. It became the triple dog dare immediately because I was, you know, 23 with my guy friends at a club. And it, it became a $100 bet that I could not go over there, talk to her, and get her phone number. A $100 stupid guy bet that I could not not do at that point. So I thought about it for a little while, and what I did was I sent a bottle of champagne and a plate of strawberries to her table. And it took me about 10 minutes to get over there, you know. And my palms were sweaty and my mouth was dry. And I walked up to her and I said, you're beautiful and I'm Steve. You know? <laughs> and it kind of worked. She was like, oh, hi, and we kind of started talking, and I'd sent the stuff over, so we were all sitting there. My friends and her friends were all sitting at the thing, and it was going really well, and I'm sitting next to her, and I'm being funny, and we're all drinking champagne, and I go, and I knock two glasses of champagne, not onto her dress, but into her dress. <laughs> I mean, they went, it went into her dress. And I just went, oh! And there was a frozen moment, and she gasped, and her friends gasped. And I thought, oh, God, oh, God, what's going to happen? How, how, is there any way to save this? And then, mercifully, she smiled, and she started laughing. And I was like, oh, my God, this is wonderful. Thank you for being so cool. And she said, you know, it's a black dress. It's champagne. It's not the end of the world. Whatever. So she went to the bathroom, you know, and she, I guess she patted it off or whatever, and she came back, and I'm thinking, great, this is fantastic, I got through it. So I ordered another round from the table or whatever, and everything's going super well, and waitress comes over with a bunch of beers, you know, and as I stand up to go to the bathroom, boom, I knocked three beers <laughs> onto the same girl in less than 10 minutes. And I just stood there, frozen. and ran away. <laughs> I ran... <laughs> I ran out of the club. I, I left my credit card there. I just ran. I ran home. I ran until I walked, and I went home and just put my head in under the pillow. And thank God my friends are... They still are very classy guys, and, and they fixed it. They gave her my contact information so I could pay for the tab. And then the next day, at the office, she did call, and she called me an idiot. And she, was, she did not think I was cute anymore. And she wanted me to pay for her dry cleaning, but she called me at the office where I had caller ID. So I got her number, and I won 100 bucks. Oh yeah. Okay, I asked our next storyteller uh, what was her happy place. And she said, and I agree, taking walks in Boston Common. 
Please welcome to the stage, Nina Mitchell. So I woke up in a hospital, and I was in real pain, especially the right side of me. My arm, my right arm, was always bent, as if it were deflecting blows. And my legs, particularly my right leg, was really weak. But most of the time, I was just out. 20 hours a day, gone. And when I did wake up, I did not make sense. My words were disturbed. Now, I was not supposed to happen, happen to me. I was 26. I was a graduate of Harvard. I was an internet startup. That's where I worked. I was on the make. And I liked uh, following rules because the rules generally fell in my favor. But I had to stop everything and stop because I had a stroke. Many of you may know of the most common kind of stroke. It happens when there's a bleed or there's a blockage in the brain. But there are other kinds of strokes, and that's what happened to me. Just something started bleeding in my brain. They didn't know what. And all this excess blood created problems both in my movement and in my speech, and also in myself. This is what happened. I was at a wedding. And suddenly I felt very strange, like all my energy was going to my midsection. So I left early and I went to a studio apartment in my house in Washington, D.C. And it still felt very weird, but not in pain. So I figured I would go to a friend's house. But my friends were all still at the wedding, so no one was home. And then I was thinking, well, maybe, maybe an ex-boyfriend. So. <laughs> So, so I called him, and he was annoyed. But, but I was pushy, and he said, fine. So I went to his place, put me out on, on the couch, and he went to bed, and I went to bed. And the next day, I had lost myself. He called my parents, and he took me to a hospital. When I was in the hospital and awake, what I remember is how frustrated it was to be in a cage, because without words, you're kind of no personality, no self. So I was pretty good at understanding people, what they said to me, but very hard for me to pronounce nouns, very long nouns. So my friend Helen came to visit me, and I called her halibut. <laughs> and then this nurse came in, and I said, I needed an enema. <laughs> and she looked at me. She said, where do you hurt? <laughs> and I pointed to my head. I guess enema meant pain medication. But sometimes I made no sense at all. Like, I grabbed a doctor's hand very violently, and I said, I have a magic uterus. <laughs> And the thing is that I was, I just don't know who I was at that time, or who was the person who was lying on the bed. It certainly wasn't the self that I had before. 
And I will tell you that personality is not permanent. So they decided to do brain surgery after a couple weeks. And I was very excited about it, actually. It was the night before, and I looked at my mirror, and this emaciated person looked back at me. I had lost 20 pounds in one month, and my, my leg and my arms all hung at weird angles. But I was so pumped. I, I gave the surgery the chance to pull me back, to create a new self, or back to my old self. So at 5 in the morning, the nurse came. And it was the same nurse who had not given me an enema. <laughs> and she bent over me, and she whispered in my ear. She said something like, whatever God is with you, bring Nina back here. And then she put me on a gurney. She was pretty athletic. And so she began to push me towards the operating room really fast. And I remember looking at the ceiling tiles and how they moved faster and faster. And we went through an overpass, and the light came through from the sun. And it was warm and comforting and scary. When I got to the operating room, there were doctors there, and my mother was there. And then I don't remember anything. They cut a hole in my head, just behind the head, hair line. It was in the sort of shape of a door. It's kind of rectangular. And what they do when they cut you open, they use a special medical saw. I asked the surgeon later, what does it sound like when you cut open people's heads? He said, it sounded like wood. So then they went in, and they got to the place where there was lots of blood. And they looked around for a cause but they couldn't find any. The surgeon later said, no smoking gun. And that is really scary because it's the villain, you know? You want to have one, but there wasn't one. And I didn't know if it would come back or not. But they took out a lot of the blood, and then they shut the door and stitched me up, and I woke up. And I was much better then. I could walk better and talk better. And I made a determination that I would return to my old self. And I did lots and lots of physical therapy. And I did move fast in that direction. I was first in a wheelchair, and then I moved to a cane, and then I was on free walking. But it's sometimes hard to go back to your old self in other ways. So just before I was discharged was a Saturday night, and my friend Wendy was having a birthday party. And she came to visit me that afternoon, with, along with Helen. And I was very sad, because I really wanted to go to the birthday party, but I couldn't, because I was stuck in the hospital. Well, Helen and Wendy, good friends that they are, suggested that I break out of the hospital for the evening. This had never occurred to me. Well, what if I get caught? What if I get in trouble? But Helen and Wendy, good friends as they are, said, they have to let you back in. It's a hospital. <laughs> this was persuasive. 
So we decided that I would leave at 8.45 p.m. So as we got closer to that time, I switched my clothing to extra special sweatpants. <laughs> and I watched a movie on TV, James Bond, You Only Live Twice. At 8.45, Helen appeared. She had saved her visitor pass from the afternoon. <laughs> So she put it on my shirt, and then we went out to the corridor. And it was just like a James Bond movie. Look left, look right, coast is clear. Now at this hospital, the uh, visitor's hours ended at 9 p.m., so there were a whole lot of people leaving at the same time. So we sort of mingled with the pack, and we went out the front doors, and no one stopped us. My friend Magda was waiting in a tiny little black compact car. And we said, go, 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 and we ran in. And she drove down 14th Street Northwest in Washington, D.C. And I realized that I hadn't been in a car for seven weeks. And I felt like I owned the city. When we got to my, the party, no one had really known that I was coming. And so I made the party. So everyone sat down and they asked me lots of questions and uh, I tried to answer them as best I could. But really most of the time I just sort of sat and watched and enjoyed the party. They took out a birthday cake in the shape of an armadillo. It was green frosting on the outside and red velvet cake on the inside. So then after about an hour or so, I returned, I decided I, I should get back to the hospital. So Magda drove me there. Now, the plan, the escape plan, had all about been about how I was going to leave the hospital. <laughs> we hadn't thought at all about how I was gonna get back into the hospital. So unbeknownst to Magda, she parked her car right in front of a security camera. <laughs> So I got nabbed by a security guard as, as I tried to get in the doors. And he asked me all kinds of questions. Who are you? Who's your friend? Where did you go? And I looked at him, and I thought, you know, the only way I'm going to get out of this is if I pretend that I do not understand anything he's saying. <laughs> and that I cannot talk at all. That's one good thing of brain surgery. You can play really dumb if you have to. But the interesting thing about this story is that I don't think I would have broken out of a hospital before my stroke. That wasn't in my, my world. I didn't get into altercations with security guards before. And there are other things that are different, too. Like, one of my friends told me that I laugh louder after my stroke than I did before. And Helen, my friend, she told me that sometimes I am rude to waiters now. <laughs> and I never used to be rude to waiters. But is this really unsettling? to have a self that you don't really know. 
All of this happened many years ago. And pretty soon, I'm going to another wedding, to mine. And what's really great is that I met this dashing fiance. I, I met him after my stroke. So he doesn't know me, the, the me before. He just knows me now, and he loves me as I am. And sometimes I do, I do sometimes miss my old self. I do. But I'm becoming more comfortable with myself now. Thank you. Nina Mitchell. Nina Mitchell is a writer based in Boston. Her website, mindpop.net, chronicles the adventures of one whose mind disappeared. Three days after Nina told this story, she got married. Wedding photos at themoth.org. That's it for this episode of the Moth Radio Hour. We hope you'll join us next time. And that's the story from the moth. Your host this hour was Steve Burns. Steve is best known for playing Steve on Nickelodeon's Blues Clues from 1996 to 2002. Since then, he's released a rock record for grown-ups, toured with the Flaming Lips, made an album of music for children, and appeared in strange plays, mostly in Brooklyn. The stories in this show were directed by Catherine Burns and Sarah Austin Janess. The rest of the most directorial staff includes Sarah Haberman, Jennifer Hickson, and Meg Bowles. Production support from Kirsty Bennett, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Brandon Ector. Thanks to public radio station WGBH in Boston. Moth stories are true as remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Moth events are recorded by Argo Studios in New York City, supervised by Paul Ruest. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Tin Hat and John Zorn. The Moth is produced for radio by me, Jay Allison, with Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. This hour was produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. The Moth Radio Hour is presented by the Public Radio Exchange, PRX.org. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching your own story and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly open mic story slam competition. February's theme is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.